Wow, excellent job, girls. Thank you. Christmas is such a a joyful, joyful time. Uh, uh, we love the decorations. We love the lights. We love the the getting together with family. Uh, we love the food. Uh, we love uh, the the songs. It is a joyful time for most people. Uh, for most people, holiday is filled with joy. Uh, but for others, it's a source of pain. And there's various reasons for this pain. Maybe your loved one's died. It's your first Christmas figuring it out. Maybe you're dealing with a lingering physical illness. Maybe you just don't like Christmas because it was never much fun at your home growing up. Emotional scars as a child have, have left you with negative memories. But, but whatever the cause, for a lot of folks, the result is often the same. Pain, annual pain, that rolls around every December. Uh, today, we're going to conclude a study in the book of Job that, that deals with the man who's facing lingering pain. One of the things that makes Job such, a, such an important book of the Bible is so many people can relate to his story. Uh, I, I was noticing this week as I was studying the, the, for this sermon how, how the book of Job begins and ends. The beginning of the book of Job says, there was a man in the country of Uz who was named Job. He, he was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and, and turned away from evil. That's a good, a, a good start to the book. And the book ends with a very simple phrase, and Job died old and full of days. I mean, this is a pretty normal story if you just take those two verses. But what is in between is far from typical. This good man, this family man, this man who loved God, had his life fall apart in an instant. And as you read the story... I can't help but feel like I'm hearing the words of a man who's in complete shock. As you read chapter 3 through about 37, I just hear words that, 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 uh, of disbelief of what's going on. And as the reality of his current life sets in, so does depression. And you see that tone change. And by the time we get to chapter 30 of Job, he says, I cry out to you for help, but you don't answer. When I stand up, you, you just look at me. He says in chapter 31, if only I had someone to hear my case, if somebody could listen to me and hear uh, what, what I have to say, let the Almighty answer me. Let my opponent compose his indictment. You can hear him asking, why is God allowing me to endure so much pain? Now we know Job's not perfect, but... We also know that he's more righteous than others who had wealth, who had not had it stripped. Or who had children who had not lost their children. Or who had health, whose health had not broken. And here Job's asking the question we get to. Why? Why are you allowing me to face what others who are not even trying to please you don't have to face? Many people have felt that way. My guess is there's some people in this room who felt that way. They've got to the place where you've been angry because God let you go through something that you didn't want to go through. 
And a common trait of human beings is we feel entitled to an explanation. We, we feel like we, we, we are owed uh, the opportunity to try to make sense of it all. And we de- demand an explanation for our broken relationship or for our financial hardship or for our premature loss of a loved one or, or for brutal wars that are taking place or for physical pain. And like Job, we cry out, where are you, God? Why did you let this happen? A lot of people have asked that question. That's not unique to Job. That's kind of common to the human experience. But what is not common to the human experience is not many people who have cried out, God, where are you at, have had God show up. And God shows up in a very tangible way to speak to Job. He he speaks directly to him and he challenges Job, who are you to question me? I'm God, you're man, I'm the creator, you're the created being. I'm omniscient, you're limited in your understanding. He says, and God speaks in Job 38, who's this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Your Bible might say words without wisdom. Well, that's a common trait among humanity, isn't it? For people to speak words without wisdom. I was looking up some famous quotes of the last few years. And this week I heard some words, or read some words without wisdom. Britney Spears was speaking to a magazine and said, I get to go to lots of overseas places, like Canada. Michael Vick, I have two weapons. My arm, my legs, and my brain. Don King, the famous boxing promoter, said of one of his fighters, he he speaks English and Spanish, and he's bilingual too. Arnold Schwarzenegger said, I think gay marriage is something that should be between a man and a woman. (laughs) And then Brittany, uh, Brooke Shields said, smoking kills, and if you're killed, you've lost an important part of your life. But uh, so many people speak with so many words without wisdom with so many ignorant words. And in our arrogance and our verbosity, we can say some pretty stupid things. And this is true spiritually. In sinful pride and and self-pity, we can say the most absurd things like, God, you've got some explaining to do. Or I would love to give God a piece of my mind. Job was the best man on earth, but he still uttered ignorant words. And he says in verse 3, God says to Job, something I never want to hear, get ready to answer me like a man. I'm going to ask the questions now, and you've got some explaining to do. So in chapter 38, we we start a series of 70 questions, and basically they're divided into three categories. The first set of questions uh, are, are, are given by God, and He asked Job about the wonders of nature. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 38, he says, where, where were you when I established the earth? 
tell me if, if you have understanding. He, he says in verse 5, Who fixed its dimensions, Job? When the earth was measured out and we decided what it would be like, uh, were, were you there? Who, who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? Later on in verse 12, he says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Have you ever assigned the dawn to its place? He says in verse 16, Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked on the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of, of deep darkness? Again in verse 34, he says, Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? I mean, Job gets grilled and he has no answer. And can't you just see him standing there saying, oh, Well, no, sir, I, I don't know. No, I wasn't there. No, I have no clue. Only you can do that, but God's not finished yet. In verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 39, do you know when a mountain goat gives birth, Job? Do you understand that? Have you ever watched a deer in labor? You know, uh, can you count the months that they are pregnant so that you can know the exact time that they give birth? God says, Job, I designed the reproductive system of a goat. And you don't even understand that. You've never seen one born. You don't know when it happens. But I watch every one. And you challenge me. Chapter 39, God shifts his questioning from nature to the animal kingdom with the, with the goats and with, with the deer. And, 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 and he says the ox with amazing strength, yet he can be tamed and serve man. Job 39 verse 9, the, would the wild ox be willing to serve you? Would it spend the night by your feeding trough? Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but her feathers and plumage are, but are her feathers and plumage like the storks? And then he says, Job, do you ever look at a horse? You ever just looked at a horse, Job? Who, who gives strength to the horse? Is it you? Do you adorn his neck with a mane? Do the eagles soar at your command, Job? Uh, are, are you the one that makes them to, to make their nest on high? continues questioning Job in chapter 40. The Lord answered Job and said, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. I can almost hear God saying, Job, are you really qualified to have this discussion with me? Are you really at a place... And at an understanding that you can question my justice. And Job answers. Verse 3 of chapter 40. I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place a hand over my mouth. Verse 5. I've spoken once and I will not reply, tw I will not reply twice. And I can add nothing. But God wasn't finished with Job. In chapter 40, God asked Job questions about his character. Beginning in verse 7. He, 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 he picks up this line of questioning. Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will answer me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like Him? 
Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Unleash your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Can you do this, Job? Can you look on every proud person and humble him? Can you trample the wicked where they stand? Can you hide them together in the dust and prison them in their grave? Then I will confess to you that you own the right. Uh, Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can deliver you. Then I will confess to you that you, we can stand toe-to-toe in question. If you can stand up to that questioning, Job, then you can question what I'm doing. Well, of course, Job couldn't. You get the feeling that Job would like to take back a lot of what he had said. And that you get the feeling that Job would like to be anywhere but where he was at. But this section was not preserved to make Job look foolish. I believe it was preserved to give us some practical lessons to help us remain faithful when life's really hard. Lesson number one, remember that God is in charge of the universe. Therefore, be humble. The universe doesn't revolve around us, it centers around God. We are His creation, not vice versa. He is not our servant, we are His. And it's important to accept the fact that you're not God. I've told you all this a hundred times, but if you want a good morning devotional, when you, after you get out of the shower and the mirror is fogged up, wipe it off, look in the mirror, and point at that person and say, you are not God. That's a good place to start your devotional life, to remember that the person whose feet hit the floor and who slumbered through the night is not the one who holds the universe together. There is a God, and we're not it. It's important to accept this because if you do, the attitude about your problems will change. Let's say you're in the Army Reserves and you get called up to active duty. And your unit is going to be sent to the Middle East. You could protest and others don't have to go there. I think it's unfair. I hate hot weather. I'm really uncomfortable in desert conditions. I don't want to endanger my life. I demand to talk with the commander-in-chief. Do you think the officials are going to say, well, you know, okay, uh, we, we really don't want to inconvenience you in any way. Where would you like to be assigned? If you say, I, I'd prefer Hawaii, they're not going to say, yeah, well, when do you want to go and how long do you want to stay? It doesn't work that way. That's not an option because you're not in charge. The army doesn't sit around you. It has a purpose of doing what's best for the country. And that end result supersedes your personal comfort and glory. And you have to go and make the most of your situation. You can say to God, I don't like this marriage assignment. Or I don't like this physical pain. Or I don't like this difficult job. But you may have no option. And frustration can set in and you can get angry at God, but I want you to understand when you get angry at God and shake your fist in His face, you're playing into Satan's hand. Satan's goal is not to destroy Job. Satan's goal is try to dishonor God. And our goal as the created being is not to glorify ourselves and live in comfort. Our goal as the created being is to bring honor to the One who created us. Our goal is not simply to live a life free from pain and die. Our chief goal is to glorify God in everything that we do. So the question we should be asking ourselves, whether we are 
sailing smooth seas or traversing choppy waters? Is do I handle my life in a way that honors God? Lesson number two. I believe that we learn from this section that we should have faith that God will provide answers. Be patient. If I were to ask you, what do you know about the book of Job? What would you say? Maybe you would say, being good doesn't exempt you from pain. Good and bad people face bad stuff. And that's fair. Another thing you could say is human explanations often fail to bring comfort. You know, people can try to explain what you're going through like we looked at last week, but that doesn't always bring comfort. Maybe the most notable thing about the book of Job is the absence of explanation. In chapter 38, God speaks and we think, okay, at last we're going to get an answer about suffering. But God answers and said, I'm in charge and you're not. Guys, that's the answer of the book of Job. You might think that's anticlimactic. To me, that gives me great comfort because I know what I'm in charge of, I mess up. But there is one who has made the universe orderly, who has allowed the earth to spin just right so that he could love on his image-bearing creation. And he's in control. And when I go through something that I don't like or I face something that I would rather not face and I wonder, God, what are you doing? I don't wonder from the perspective of your, uh, you, you mess things up always. I wonder from a perspective of God, I don't understand. But I know that you make all things work together for good of those who love you. And I know that you hold tomorrow in your hand. And I know you will never leave me or forsake me. And I know, Lord, even though I don't understand this, you've got this. And that helps me. Yes, God will help us understand in time. But maybe in this life, we will not get answers to what we're going through. And, and that might bring a question in your mind, why? I mean, why doesn't God just lay His cards out on the table? Why don't you just tell us what you're doing, God? And I think there's two reasons why God doesn't do this. The first is, we're not capable of handling the answer now. Uh, a man's small child was eating an apple in the back seat of his car when he asked his daddy, Daddy, why is my apple turning brown? His dad explained, because after you ate the skin off, the meat of the apple came into contact with the air, and it caused the uh, apple to oxidize and thus changed its molecular structure and turned it into a different hue. And the little boy said, Daddy, are you talking to me? <laughs> if God gave us an answer, we'd probably have to understand centuries of histories, actions of people, complexities that we couldn't possibly grasp, and we would end up saying, God, are you talking to me? We must remember that the prophet Isaiah told us that God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. The Lord is God, and we're not. So he says, trust me, and, and wait, and I will answer you. 
I think there's a second reason why we don't always hear on the front end why uh, we're going through what we're going through, and that is it would ruin the test that can only be created through ambiguity. Uh, through the ambiguity. Uh, I went to Kentucky Wesleyan College. I finished up there to go to seminary. I was called to preach when I was 16 years old. I knew I wanted to go to seminary. To go to seminary, you had to have a bachelor's degree. I started out at Campbellsville, went two years, met a little red-headed girl right before I left high school. We continued to date through uh, our time at Campbellsville, and we thought it would be much better if we got married and continued on college closer to her mom's house. And so I transferred to Kentucky Wesleyan College. I'll be honest, I was just trying to get my degree so I could go through seminary. I got a philosophy and religion degree. Some of my classes were very tough. Some of them were very liberal uh, in theological thinking, something that I don't possess to this day. But some of them, especially in the philosophy department, I don't know the better way to say this, but we're just, we're just cakewalks. I had a philosophy professor who loved to bloviate every class. He was about 80 years old. He had reached tenure. He just kept teaching because he liked to get up and talk. He would talk and talk and talk and talk. He never took attendance. He never asked for class participation. He, he told you not to take notes, and you did not have to buy a book. It was awesome. Well, for somebody who's already working a full-time job and who had just gotten married, it didn't take me long to know that he handed out his 20-question test that he had at midterm and at finals. On one page, he would hand them out to you and say, memorize these, and then you would come in and take a multiple-choice test. And so I have a strong GPA at Kentucky Wesleyan College. <laughs> Because I could pull that off, but everything I learned in memorizing that sheet, I forgot. Now, I know two things have happened. One, a lot of our students are thinking about going to Kentucky Wesleyan now. <laughs> He's not there anymore. I hear it's much tougher. And two, you recognize that I probably didn't learn as much about philosophy as a philosophy and religion major should know. Because you ruin the test if you know what all the questions and all the answers are before you take it. A test is not helpful if the answers are, are known in advance. If God said, I'm going to allow your child to get very ill, but, but this is going to happen and this is going to happen and they're going to get well and the reason I'm doing this is to intensify your prayer life. Well, God, if He told you what was going to happen and gave you the time frame, that test which is to drive you to your knees and teach you to depend on the Creator, that test might not have any impact on your life. The problem is knowing the outcome eliminates the uncertainty that motivates us and tests our faith. We mature through God's test because we don't know how the story ends. And this is why it's not until sometime after the tests are over do we realize why. And, and it, God will give answers, but He will give answers in His time. But we have to be willing to wait. And sometimes we'll have to wait until eternity. But God will bring His answers. Chapter 42, the last chapter in Job, verse 1. Job replies to the Lord, 
I know that you can do anything you want and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Verse 2, or verse 3, excuse me. You ask, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things that I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak when I question you. You will inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now I understand God. I thought I knew a little bit about you, but now I really understand. Through this experience, Job has moved into a more intimate relationship with God, one that he could not have had without pain and sorrow. Max Licato says, A season of suffering is a small price to pay for a clear view of God. When Job gets a clear view of God, listen to how he responds in verse 6. I take back my words and I repent in dust and ashes. Have you ever noticed the closer that people get to God, the more they are aware of their own sinfulness? The people who seem to be completely oblivious to their sin are probably not walking very close with God. The people who are always pointing their finger at others are probably not walking very close to God. The people who I've watched walk closely with God are people who understand, even if it seems microscopic to the outside eye, they understand the depths of their sin. Job becomes aware. When we become aware of our sinfulness, it makes us ashamed. Adam hid. Abraham fell prostrate on the ground. Moses covered his face. Isaiah repented of his unclean lips. Daniel went into a trance. Saul of Tarsus fell to the ground. And here Job repents. But what did he repent of? I mean, I think that's a legitimate question. What, what did Job repent of? Chapter 1 says he was blameless. He didn't repent of the way he raised his kids. He raised them to love God. He didn't repent of the way he made his money. He repented of his attitude toward God. He repented of his limited understanding of who God is. And he repented of his many complaints against God. Did you know complain is used more times in the book of Job than any other book in the Bible? In fact, one half of the complaints registered in Scripture are found in the book of Job. The end of the story. Job 42 verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and he doubled his previous possessions. I want you to notice that first phrase. After he had prayed for his friends. We move on to the doubling the possessions and we fail to see that that. that his anger has changed to forgiveness. And the Lord did prosper him. He prospered twice as much as he had before. And in the New Testament, we learn a little bit about why. In James 5.11, it says, See, we count as blessed those who've endured. You have heard of Job's endurance. You've seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and, and, and merciful. We're, we're told in verse 12 that, that he was blessed by the Lord. In chapter 1, we learned that Job has 7,000 sheep. Now he has 
14,000 sheep. Why? Because the Lord is gracious and merciful. We're told that he had 3,000 camels, and now he's got 6,000 camels. Why? Because the Lord is gracious and merciful. We learned that he has 1,000 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys, even though he only started out with 500. Why did he double it? Because he's gracious and merciful. And then we read, he also had seven sons and daughters. How many sons and daughters did Job start with in chapter 1? Seven. Seven sons, three daughters. Why did he only get seven sons and three daughters back? Because the Lord's gracious and merciful. That's why. (laughs) J. Vernon McGee said, he only got seven sons and three daughters back because his other seven sons and three daughters were in heaven and he would see them again so the Lord blessed Job verse 16 Job lived 140 years after this and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation verse 17 and then Job died old and full of days point three What can we learn from the book of Job? The last chapter tells us that God will make things right. Be confident. Keep trusting in Him. Believe that God will bless you if you remain faithful. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that God is the one who's in control and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. God in His wisdom gave us a happy ending to the book of Job. Sometimes those endings come in this life. In the Old Testament, this life is all they understood. They didn't understand that there was a land that's fairer than day. They didn't understand that there was a time where God would put us in His eternal kingdom. It was not until Jesus came did we understand that there was life after death. Really understand it. So even now, when we face those times where those happy endings don't come in this life, we know that this life is not the end. We know that sometimes God waits until eternity to settle accounts. And I want to tell you, weeping may endure for the night. And weeping may endure for your life. But joy comes in the morning. Job learned through this that life is sometimes cruel. But in the end, God is compassionate. And this is why he could say with confidence, I know that my Redeemer lives, and on the earth he yet shall stand. Satan's most vicious attack wasn't against Job. Some people say that was Satan's most vicious attack in the Bible, but that's not true. Satan's most vicious attack in the Bible was not one who was blameless when compared to other, but one who was purely blameless. One who was completely innocent. One who didn't deserve any pain at all. Jesus was perfect, but Satan's agents ridiculed Him, lied about Him, brutalized Him, and crucified Him. 
But God took the cross, the instrument Satan intended for evil, and he used it as a means of salvation, forgiveness, and hope for all of mankind. And three days after Jesus was crucified, God raised him from the dead. And he exalted him, and he gave him a name which is above every name. And so may I leave you with this from the book of Job. If you're going through hardship, and you know that Satan is doing everything he can in his power to try to undermine your faith and get you to tuck tail and run away from the gracious God who has established the, the, the workings of this universe, may I remind you what Satan intends for evil often becomes God's greatest triumph. Let's pray. Father, I ask you today to speak to us as we have this time of invitation. May our hearts be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a second, we're going to stand together and sing, and we're going to invite you to put your trust in the Savior. We're going to invite you to, to come by faith to Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin, and to boldly confess His name. And declare Him as Lord. If you need to come today as we stand together and sing, we invite you to come right now.